it's really lovely to be here this morning. It's a really wonderful day, isn't it, Mother's Day? I know it carries really mixed emotions. Um, some people love it, some people hate it. I think the smaller your children are, the more you dislike it. The older they get, the more pleasant it becomes. Um, we're going to introduce the theme of what I'm going to be preaching on this morning. George is going to do a dance for us this morning to a song which is called What Have I Done to Deserve Love Like This? That was lovely, wasn't it? George is so gifted at dancing, and um, it's a real gift that God has given her, that beautiful creativity um, gift. I, um, I definitely don't have it, but I'm really grateful that George does. <laughs> uh, so this morning, if you haven't worked out already, what we're going to be looking at is the theme of what have I done to deserve love like this? Um, and it's a really appropriate theme, isn't it, for Mother's Day, where um, love is such an important part of being a mum or having a mum is love. I wanted to um, just read a little quote that I read the other night. Um, it's from this book by Beth Moore, and it says this. It says, um, I don't think we ever recover from parenting, no matter what kind of miles, years, or conflicts separate a child from a parent. If I may put it crudely, parenting is terminal. We take it to the grave, and at times we're fairly certain it will kill us. I used to tease my mum and tell her that her gravestone should read, I'd like to thank my five children, without whom I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> I thought that sort of sums it up, doesn't it? Uh, we're going to be reading from Luke this morning. Luke 7, verse 36 to 49. I really felt God draw me to this passage to preach on this morning. It should come up behind me, but if you've got a Bible, do you want to open it up there? So one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them would love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she wet my feet with, feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, 
But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this is a story of a sinful woman who was most likely a prostitute. She basically gate crashes a private dinner party. It's the absolute horror of the host, Simon. She pours expensive ointment over Jesus' feet as he's lying, eating at table, because he used to lie at the table and eat. It would have been so uncomfortable if he did. Um, they, and then the moment got even more awkward because she started crying and washing Jesus' feet with her unbound hair, which was absolutely disgraceful to let your hair down as a woman. And she was washing his feet. Simon and his guests are totally horrified. But Jesus sees this act for what it actually is, which is an act of love and adoration and appreciation for Jesus. Jesus explains her actions to Simon using a parable of a moneylender, summarizing that he who is forgiven much loves much. There's another story like this in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12, and that's of a woman anointing Jesus' head with oil. That event occurred later, and the emphasis of that story is giving to the poor and preparing Jesus for burial. But this story, the emphasis is love and forgiveness. It's a recount of a woman of the world, a prostitute, who realized what Jesus had done for her, and she starts to understand the depth of his love and forgiveness and responds with this overflowing love and gratitude to the one who has opened her eyes for her need for forgiveness and has caused a radical change in her life. She recognized that Jesus could forgive sins. Whereas Simon, on the other hand, whilst recognizing Jesus as a teacher, did not give Jesus the love, respect, and honor that he was actually due. In fact, Simon was culturally very disrespectful and rude to Jesus. In those days, his servants should have washed Jesus' feet when he entered the house. It was good manners because you came in off dusty, dirty streets, and then you took your sandals off, so you used to wash your feet. But he didn't even do that. He hadn't even greeted him with a kiss, and lots of the cultures that we work in, that would be so rude, and he hadn't even given him that sign of welcome. You can see two very different responses See, Simon had failed to understand or acknowledge his need for forgiveness. Simon was a Pharisee. The the historian Josephus describes them as the most expert and accurate expositors of the law. So Simon would have known what God's account is of man. It's in Psalm 53. It's one example of it. It says, they have all fallen away. Together, they have all become corrupt. There is none good not even one. But still, Simon did not understand because he considered himself to be a good man with no need. After all, Pharisee actually means separate one. There's this brilliant quote that I read, and it says this, one thing that shuts man off from God is self-sufficiency. I'll read that again because it's so true, isn't it? That the one thing that shuts man off from God is self-sufficiency. Jesus told the parable of the moneylender because it makes it clear that actually we all owe God. There's nobody who doesn't 
oh God, we've all done, thought, and said things that are wrong, and we all need God's forgiveness. This free forgiveness, or pardon, if you like, he gives to us when we ask, that's all we have to do, and humble ourselves, when we recognize that we all fall short, we're all corrupt, none of us are good, not even one. We all need his forgiveness. Because Simon felt no need for forgiveness, he felt no love, either for Jesus or this woman. Whereas this woman's response to undeserved forgiveness and love is the result of her conscious need for forgiveness, her desperate desire for love, she understood that Jesus could supply it and so received forgiveness and poured out overflowing love onto Jesus. I want us to look at two points this morning. What type of love is it that caused this woman to act the way that she did? And secondly, what should our response be to this type of love? In John 15, verse 13, it says, No greater love has anyone than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And that Jesus said that. And yet Jesus did even more than that, that while we were rejecting him, living for ourselves, doing whatever we wanted, denying the existence of God, I, I saw this advert and it said this, and I think it sums up how we are before we come to Jesus. It said, it's my body, it's my life, it's my choice, I can do whatever I want. And that sums up our position before God. So why would Jesus die for us? Why would he do that? Well, in Romans 5, we find the answer. It says, because of his great love for us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us because of his great love. He doesn't owe it to us. It's not his duty to die for us. God sent Jesus to die because of his great love for us. You know, the only person who can say about themselves that they are love is God. God is love. There is nobody else who could say that about themselves. This perfect, abounding, steadfast love means that God himself, in the person of Jesus, died for us. The innocent for the guilty, the clean for the dirty, the righteous for the unrighteous, light for darkness, the perfect for the tainted, the whole for the broken. It's all because of this unselfish, unending, immeasurable love of God. In Jeremiah 31, it's referred to as the everlasting love of God. It's completely unique. You know, if you don't know what it feels like to be loved, God loves you. He completely loves you. In fact, Simon was just saying to me before I got up here that he really feels there's someone here who just doesn't feel loved at all. And God loves you. He loves you with that eternal, everlasting, unending love. You know, you may think if you're sitting here and you're a, a believer that you're okay, really, um, and you're essentially all right. Well, I'd like to share with you a little bit of my testimony and then have a bit of a challenge from it. You know, in my early Christian years, um, I was actually more like Simon in this story. Um, I hadn't really been a rebel. I, I was actually quite a good girl. Um, and I honestly thought I was a bit above 
everybody. I wasn't aware that I thought like that, but I acted like that, you know? That sort of thing. You look back and think, oh, awful. Um, and I really struggled, actually, to show love and grace to people. Um, but over the years, and through much heartache, desperation, terribly embarrassing moments, moments where you just have that sudden understanding of what you're like, it, God removed my pride and he humbled me. He has graciously brought me to a place of knowing that I really am the worst of sinners. But because of Jesus' forgiveness and love, I'm a saint. I've been adopted into God's family. I'm loved by a king. I have no idea why Jesus would do that for me, but he has. And I have, and I continue to understand the, that the forgiveness I receive from God is undeserved, but he loves me, and that his love for me is enough. You know, as I've loved, the, I've enjoyed being loved by God more, I've been able to pour out more love onto people. I'm still learning, which you probably know if you know me, to be more loving. Um, but the more I realize it, the more I can love. So can I ask you, if you're a believer today, how easily does love and grace flow from you? Does it flow from you easily, or do you have to squeeze it out? Because if you have to squeeze it out and muster it up, then I would suggest that maybe it's time for you to remember that he who is forgiven much loves much. This love is amazing because it gives us peace. Jesus says to this woman at the end, doesn't he? You go in peace. It's a peace that surpasses understanding, we're told in Philippians 4. We can have peace when we shouldn't have it. Um, I knew overwhelming peace when I, when I um, nearly died once. I had absolutely overwhelming peace. I shouldn't have had it, but I did because that is what God's love gives us. It's a peace that flows from knowing in our heads and our hearts that the love of God covers us. In 1 John, we're told that the love of God casts out all fear. And actually, that's so important for our parenting, isn't it? That we don't parent from a position of fear. We parent from a position of peace and of the love of God. We make our parenting boundaries for our children and the things that we put into our children, not from what we fear might happen to them, but from the knowledge that God loves them more than you do and that he has the right plan for him and them. And so we look to the Bible to give us what we shape our children with. This love is totally amazing because it's able to forgive us from all of our wrongdoing and we can rest in his unfailing love. We can see from this story that this love defends and acknowledges us. You know, Jesus defended this woman. He could have just batted her away and said, get off my feet. I don't like people touching my feet. Leave me alone. He could have laughed at her. He could have said, well, yes, Simon, I admit it's a little bit embarrassing. You know, it was all right, the ointment, but imagine crying on my feet, letting your hair down, washing it off. I mean, honestly, what was she thinking? No, Jesus defends her. He honors her. He speaks kindly to her. He gives her time, and he delights in her and her act of love towards him. You know, Jesus delights in you. In Ephesians 2, we're told that he chose you, if you um, love him today, to be made holy and blameless in his sight. But he chose you in love. In love, he has adopted you into his family 
You know, um, if you love Jesus and follow him today, he defends you before the enemy. He sits um, on the right hand of God defending you before the enemy. Whatever you feel about yourself, actually, Jesus is defending you right now. If you're sitting here thinking, that's all very well, but I'm just not good enough, Jesus is defending you and saying, it's okay, because I am. I am enough, so it's okay. Um, Can you imagine what this woman must have felt about herself? She was a prostitute in the ancient world. Could you imagine what that would have been like? She would have been destitute. She would have felt used. She would have been despised by people, not even welcome into a room. People wouldn't even touch her. She was considered to be unclean. She would have been rejected by people. Essentially, she was an object to be paid for, to be used by men. She was abandoned, broken, And you can imagine, as the tears fell from her face and washed Jesus' feet, she had realized that Jesus had the power to remove all of those things that she felt about herself, that he loved her, even though some of those things would have been true about her. He died for her, and he loves you, and he died for you as well. You know, whatever you may feel about yourself, in a way, that doesn't matter, Jesus died for you. He loves you. You know, if you're a believer here today, when you have asked for forgiveness and you made Jesus the king of your life, Jesus delights in you. He sings over you. He rejoices over you. You're the apple of his eye. And so you have no right to say about yourself that you're not worth anything because Jesus delights in you. So how should we respond to this love? that is poured into our life. Well, firstly, it should be extravagantly like this woman. Can you just imagine being that woman? I just think she was so um, brave, actually. But she didn't care at all about what people thought. She wasn't concerned that people would have said awful things about her, that everybody would have been whispering about her the whole time. She was more concerned for what God thought of her, for how Jesus saw her. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we read, it's about sharing the gospel, which I think is very relevant to us as a church at the moment, that they shared it not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. You know, Simon and Mary had a very different heart, didn't they? Mary's heart was that she wanted to show how much she loved Jesus. She wanted to pour that out. Whereas for Simon... He wanted to show everyone around him that he was better than her, that actually he'd sort of acknowledged that there was something about Jesus that meant he should have him around for dinner, but he didn't want to associate with him too much because he might turn out to not be what they were hoping he would be. So he kind of kept his distance but did, you know, you can come around for dinner. Who are we more like? Who are you concerned about pleasing? Would you do something outrageous if God asked you to? Or would you be too afraid about what people thought? You know, when we moved here to Halsham, people thought we were totally bonkers, to be honest. Um, Our our non-Christian friends were just a bit confused because, one, they'd never heard of Halsham. And two, (laughs) two, when we explained it and they said, oh, East Sussex, how lovely, what a lovely place. And we said, yeah, yeah, it is lovely. But um, we're moving to Halsham. Then they looked Halsham up, realized the house prices are like 150,000 less than the rest of East Sussex. And they, they got it, they clicked. And they thought we were like being completely mad. But we knew that God had asked us as a family to come to Halsham. And we love Halsham so much. It is our home, 
we never want to leave here. We're, we're going to die here, I'm sure of it. And uh, <laughs> they've built a new cemetery, so there's room. So um, we're <laughs> we love it. But our non-Christian friends, they don't understand it because they don't understand a heart that says, I want to please God more than I want to please everyone around me. To the one who has given us everything, it is only right that we should give him everything that we have. I'm not just talking about money and possessions, although that is an important sign of what is happening in your heart, but I'm talking about our energy, our time, our thought life, our love, our devotion, your view of yourself. That should be given over to Jesus for all that he has done for you. We should also respond with humility. Morris, a theologian, do you know, I don't know whether he's dead or alive. Let's presume he's alive. Is he dead? He's dead, very dead, okay. Morris, <laughs> a theologian, uh, he, he comments, he says, um, it was such a mark of humility to pour perfume on Jesus' feet. It was a menial task to attend to feet. They would have been disgusting. Could you imagine it, like walking around in, just where there would have been horses and, oh, gross. But she did that. She attended to Jesus' feet, even though that was normally assigned to a slave. Mary was willing to do that. She recognized that actually to the one who has done everything for her, that she would humble herself and do whatever she could to show how much she loved Jesus. If you love Jesus today, you need to be prepared to be a servant, to serve Jesus by serving others. We don't only have the example of this woman, which I keep calling Mary because that's what they think her name was, but we'll just say this woman or Mary if I get confused. But she, she was prepared to be a servant wasn't she? She was prepared to do that. Um, without getting anything in return, she didn't receive money, which is what she normally would have received from men. She received love and forgiveness. We also have the example of this from Jesus himself, who even though Jesus is God, he was prepared to wash his disciples' feet. He went onto his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet. We have the example of recognizing that the kingdom of heaven, as we've been learning, is the wrong way round. The first will be last. The last will be first. That if you lead, you serve. That we lay down our life for the cause of the kingdom of God. You know, being humble means that you don't write people off or consider them less than you. We are all equal before God. Christ died once for all is what it says in Hebrews 7. Not just for the people that you like, but for the people that you don't, for the people you don't understand. If you're sitting here today thinking it's all very well, but all these people here, they just aren't like me. That is okay. Jesus loves you. He died for you, not just the people that are considered to be good. He died for everyone. We need to be willing to associate with everyone recognizing that we are all equally in need of God's forgiveness and salvation. We need to remember at all times that we need Jesus and are totally dependent on him. And I'll read that quote again from Barclay, which says that one thing that shuts man off from God is self-sufficiency. And I don't know about you, but I never want to shut myself off from God or receiving his love. Part of that is recognizing that we're not enough. You know, we can't manage in our own strength and power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, encourage us. You know, when we are weak, he is strong. 
But that involves humbling ourselves and asking and making time to be filled with the Holy Spirit, making it a priority in our life, recognizing that without the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to do nothing. You know, um, I think it's true to say for all mums that right from that day one when you're vomiting in the toilet and strongly suspecting that you might be pregnant, or if you're going through the adoption process and you have to do that painful process, that you have that absolute knowledge that you are not enough. You know, some days, actually most days, um, you saw, I feel like it screams from every pore of my body, I'm just not enough. I'm not patient enough. I'm not kind enough. I just don't have the grace to deal with starting the day with my children fighting, get picking children up that are still fighting, putting them in bed, and they're still fighting, even though you keep saying, let's be kind to each other. Let's not do that. How would Jesus treat your brother? What would he do? And they're still trying to kill each other. It's so annoying. They always have energy when we have none. They are just full of it. You take them on like a seven-mile walk. You get in, and you're like, oh, let's have a cup of tea. And they're like, mom, 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 let's play football, let's play football. And you're just thinking, I just can't do it. And you're so aware of the fact that we are not enough. But actually, we need to recognize that we're not. But Jesus is. He is our love He, when our love fails. He is our rescuer when we're trapped in situations that we don't know what to do. He is our wisdom when we just don't know what to do with our children or in your life. He is your wisdom. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. He supplies patience. You know, on those days when your kids are driving you totally bonkers and they just say awful things to you that hurt you so much, he is the one whose love never changes. He loves you with a perfect love. You know, Jesus alone is the one who can change our kids' hearts. Nothing we do can change our children's hearts. We can induce good behavior by making it painful to not be good, but we cannot change our children's hearts. That is the work of Jesus. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict our children. We need to help put them in that place where they will meet with God. But it is the work of God that changes our children's hearts. And it's also the work of God that changes our hearts. We parent because we are parented by God. He parents us. He loves us. And that's how, where we parent from. You know, our greatest freedom in all areas of our life, whether you're a parent here today or not, comes when we realize that we are not enough. Mary realized, or this woman realized, that she wasn't enough, and she received forgiveness and love. Simon thought he was, and he loved not very much. But God is the one who provides everything that we need. He gives us everything that we need for a life of godliness. If you're on freedom in Christ, you should by now know where that comes from because we do it every week. 2 Peter 1 verse 3, that he provides everything we need for to live a life of godliness. We should also respond with overflowing love. You know, he who is forgiven much loves much. And my friends, how much have we been forgiven? How much have you been forgiven this morning alone? How many times have you thought something that you know would not have been honorable, that if Jesus was standing in your brain, that you would be really embarrassed to know that he knows what you're thinking? And yet he forgives you. He forgives us freely, and he loves us. 
It should result in an overflowing love for God and others. In 1 John 4, it says, Since God so loved us, we also ought to love others. But practically, what does this actually look like? Well, 1 John 3, verse 16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. You know, we have the great privilege um, of working in the Horn of Africa with um, the underground church there. It's, um, most of the countries are um, ruled by Shara law or the people groups that we work with, so you're not allowed to be a Christian. We have a great privilege of, of working with them, and you as a church as well, we work with them together. We met a wonderful man there, and he um, was coming back from sharing the gospel and encouraging Christians in a place where you're not allowed to be a Christian. And on the way back, he was arrested. Um, when they found out that he was a Christian, they worked really hard to try and build a case against him because they wanted to keep him in prison. They also treated him absolutely terribly. In fact, when we um, saw him again, he was still really quite traumatized by all the things that he'd been through in prison. Um, thankfully, the UN got involved and he did get released eventually. You know, for that man, there will be no earthly reward. He won't get a lovely life. He won't get to go somewhere where he can be safe in his house. He lives constantly with the fear of that people will, will find him and, and kill him. He would lost money that he'll never regain because he was unable to work. And why, did, why would he do that? You know, why would you do that with your life? Well, it is because he loves much. He knows he's been forgiven so much that he loves so much. He loves God with all his heart. He understands that the call of God is to lay down his life for the kingdom, not by fighting, but by loving people, by sharing the gospel with people, by talking with the church and growing the church, encouraging the kingdom of heaven. You know, he's come from a religion where he has to be weighed on the scales. And if Allah is good enough in the, on that day, if he's in a good enough mood, and if he's done enough, he may get into heaven. He may, or he may not. He's been saved from that religion into a religion where actually he knows if he was weighed on the scales, he wouldn't be enough, and he would not go to heaven. But because Jesus died for him on the cross and took everything he had done, when he's weighed on the scales, he's weighed with Jesus on those scales. And so he is able to go to heaven. He knows whatever happens to him, he will be with Jesus forever and ever in a place where there will be no suffering or pain. That is the truth of what has happened in his life. You know, if you're a believer here today, can I challenge you, and I'm challenging myself with it as well, what is the depth of your love, not just for God, but for others? How much are you prepared to lay down your life for others? You know, would you be willing to do what that man did? I'd like to say that I could say yes, but in honesty, I don't know that I could. That is the call on our life, that he who is forgiven much loves much. Practically, that might mean that you don't get to um, do everything that everybody in the Western world does here. It means you don't get to have every evening to do whatever you want to do, that actually the plans in your life may revolve around what is happening in other people's lives. It may mean that you end up giving up one in four Saturday mornings to come and share the gospel with people with Love Halsham. 
Actually, there's no obligation on you to do it. We do it because of the love of God in our life. Um, The other way is 1 John 3 verse 18 says this, Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You know, when you're a believer, people should know you as a person of love. You should show love to people. The way that you speak about people when they are there and when they are not there should be the same. It should be that you love them irrespective of what you may think about some of the things that they're doing in their life. It doesn't mean that you can't say to them, oh, I don't agree with that. But actually, you know, people will receive it much better if they feel that you love them rather than if they feel that you kind of hate them. They're not going to listen to you because why would you listen to someone that hates you? We need to show hospitality to people. We need to be willing to meet people's needs. We share possessions. We ask how people are and actually genuinely care what the answer is, which is something we're not very good in 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 Britain, is it? We tend to say, how are you? And they could say, oh, my mum died. Lovely. Okay, I'm just going to um, go and finish my shopping. You know, we're actually be genuinely concerned about what is going on in people's lives. Show that love in our concern for people. We need to forgive quickly, not slowly, not hold grudges, but forgive, recognizing that we have been forgiven much. We need to be slow to anger and full of grace. We want to be a group of people where love drives everything that we do. It compels us to be more like Jesus, that as we know how much we have been forgiven, we love more and more, and we want to please Jesus with our life more and more. Um, Jesus says, if you love me, you will do as I ask. And actually, the more we love him, the more we should do as he asks. Can I just ask the band to come up? You know, there's a real challenge for us if you are a believer here today. He who is forgiven much loves much. Let's make our lives an overflow of that love and gratitude we have to the one who has opened our eyes and forgiven us and who loves us with that perfect unending love. You know, if you don't know Jesus here today, that love that I'm talking about, God loves you. It's not just for people who love Jesus. It's for you. He loves you. And he, has, he wants you to come to him, to say to him, actually, I cannot do it. I am not enough in my life. I can't get it right all the time. I keep failing. Even when I want to get it right, I don't seem to be able to. Actually, Jesus died on the cross because you are not able to, but he is. He's able to forgive you, and he wants to show his love to you. So could I just ask um, everyone to close their eyes? Um, and I just... Um, want to offer that if you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to choose to follow Jesus, that you want that love and forgiveness, you know, actually, I need forgiveness in my life. I'm going to say a prayer. If you say it in your head along with me, and afterwards, I'd love to speak to you, um, and we've got a little booklet for you about what Jesus has done for you on the cross. But Lord, we just, Lord, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you died for me on the cross. Thank you that you died and took away my sins. I choose to live for you and I ask for forgiveness. I make you the king of my life and I want to live a life where I show that I know that I'm forgiven much and loved much. Amen.
um, as a church, I, I had a picture actually for us as a church. Um, it was a picture of a river flowing from this building. And as I looked into the building, we were all on our knees just adoring Jesus like this woman. We were just adoring him and loving him. And that actually, from that flowed out this love that flowed out of the building and it was visible. Everybody could see this river flowing out of the building and into all the areas of Halsham. And I felt this challenge that we need to remember afresh what Jesus has done for us. It should never be something that we just hear and think, oh yeah, yeah, I know Jesus loves me. It should be something that totally strikes our hearts again and again. The amazement that God himself would die for us, that he would pour his forgiveness out on us because of his great love for us. So as we um, sing this song, can I just ask that you just thank Jesus for all that he's done in your life. Thank him for his love that he's poured out into your life.